Go ahead, if you want to just open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's just one of the places we'll be. We're doing our study. We're calling Jesus and his world, and we're seeing the people and the places. All of these things. Our goal is to understand these events. We divided the study, and I've shown you this every week, so it's not anything new. We've divided the study into the end of the Old Testament, between the Testaments, the beginning of the New Testament, and the end times. And so we're almost to the end. And we've already seen what happened at the end of the Old Testament and the captivity and them coming back. And then we saw in between the Testaments with Antiochus, Epiphanes, all of those things. We saw the beginning of the New Testament, the background and people coming in and who are these Pharisees and Sadducees and all of those religious leaders. And then we saw the ministry of John the Baptist, even the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And then we've been seeing all that. We're going to see lessons 11 and 12. The next two lessons really have a lot in them dealing with the cross. Uh, and we're going to see that. And, and uh, lessons 13 and 14 deal with end times because that will be the last section. So these next two lessons, I think, have a lot of things in them. We're now in that third section, the beginning of the New Testament. And we've seen the rise of Rome and the world power and the roads and the language and all of those things. This lesson, we're calling it the conflict and the cross. It's famous. Both things that we'll look at tonight are very famous. Now, there may be some things that we talk about you maybe haven't thought about before, haven't put together before, but it's all things that you've read, you've studied, and it may be some things you see that are great. We're going to look at the conflict. The conflict is going to be with Satan and the world. And we see that when Jesus came into the world, there was conflict with Satan and there was conflict with the fallen world system. And then we're going to look at the cross. And this is where Jesus is paying for the sin of the world and conquering death. So there's a lot in there as we study it tonight. So it'll be a lot of fun. So here we start with this question. What is the symbol of Christianity? It's the cross. I mean, you could say a lot of different things, uh, when we, but when we think about it, all over the world, wherever you go, uh, you'll see a cross. And yet, a lot of churches have crosses, and a lot of different places have crosses. And so it's the cross. And some would say, what well, it ought to be is the empty tomb, but it's pretty hard to portray an empty tomb in it. But, but the bottom line is the cross. Think about this. Colossians 1.17. I mean, it's Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ... Did not send me to baptize. Because some people had, had questioned him about that they need to be baptized and they had to be baptized to be saved or all that. And he says, Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in the cleverness of speech. Why? So that the what? The cross of Christ would not be made void. So he's talking about the cross. The cross of Christ. Look at this right here. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. Because when you say the cross and you say crucifixion, you, what do you think of? Tell me what you think of. Jesus. You think of Jesus dying on the cross, right? I mean, that's what you think of. You think of how he died on the cross and he paid for sin and that kind of thing. And how on the cross he even said it is finished. And so tonight, as we look at our lesson, we're going to see two areas. One is the conflict. The other is the cross, and we'll see them as we tie together. The conflict is dealing with Satan and the world, and, the, and of course, the cross is going to be Jesus' death for us. So we're going to see some things tonight. Some of it is very familiar. Some of it may not be. So let's look first at the conflict, okay? And the conflict, when we think about the conflict, and there's two aspects of the conflict. One is the devil, and the other is the world. We'll start with the devil. The conflict with the devil. The devil doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. When we study the Bible and we see Jesus on the earth, we see Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom. He has come to die and to pay for sin. He's left the glories of heaven to be the Savior of the world. Satan knows that. Satan knows exactly what Jesus is doing. He does not want Jesus to go to the cross. Why? 
if Jesus goes to the cross and pays for the sin of the world, he has a way that mankind is saved, that the debt is paid. And so when we think about the devil, uh, the devil does not want Jesus to go to the cross and what he's done and those kind of things. We think of his name. We, he slanders. He lies. He accuses. We talked about this earlier. We mentioned a little bit about him last week at the end. I mean, he is... He, let, let me tell you, we did. We were just talking right before class about the study that we did a couple of years ago, Angels and Demons. And I mean, I, it was one of my favorite studies we've ever done because a lot of times we don't think about angels and angels and demons. The demons are just bad angels. And when you think about the devil, he is, he is the most violent, vile, evil being that's ever existed and ever will exist. He lies. He lies about us. He slanders us. He accuses us. He goes before the Father and accuses every one of us. He is the tempter. He wants us to do wrong. He tempts us to do wrong. He controls. And, and let me just show you something. When, when people think about it, here, here we are, and we're in this fallen world, and we have a flesh that is a bent to sin. But the devil is the call of the God of this age. He controls the world system. So he controls the world system. The world system affects our flesh. So in the sense that how does he tempt us? He tempts us through the world system and our flesh. He's the tempter. He would love for you to do wrong. We'll, we'll talk sometime about, you know, what's his plan? What's his plan for the unbeliever? What's his plan for the believer? But we can, we can talk about it. He is sometimes called the adversary. That's what Satan means. It means he goes around as a roaring lion. He wants to, you know, he wants to stop Jesus. The bottom line goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when God said the seed of woman will do what? What will he do? Crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is the devil. So he knows. He knows from the very beginning that God, when God created man in the fall, when Jesus came, when God came and gave the deals, he said the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. So he knows he's going to be defeated. And he will pay for sin. He'll be, when I say pay for sin, he'll be moved away from God forever. He'll be banished and he'd be removed from the presence of God. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see another attempt by Satan to stop Jesus. Now, we talked about it last week as you think go through the world, and you go all the way back to Noah and how he's you know, he going to pollute the whole world. And you think about under the time of Esther, and they were going to kill everybody. You think about the boy babies that were all born at the time that Jesus was, and they killed all those babies. And you start looking all the way through history. Satan is always, if he could destroy somehow the nation of Israel, somehow destroy something, even under Egypt, what, what did they do? They said, let's kill all the boy babies. I mean, so that was his plan, is always to figure out a way to stop the Messiah. It was too late in one sense because, as we study, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is on the earth. John the Baptist has been pointing him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is here, and he's doing his ministry, so to speak. And we're going to start at the very beginning of the ministry. And that's, if you want to, go ahead and look to Matthew chapter 4. Just flip over there. Matthew chapter 4. And this is a, a famous, famous passage, famous part. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, we saw this last time. This is when Jesus is baptized. He comes out to John. John is baptizing people, and, and people are coming out there, and he's baptizing them because they're supposed to have already believed in the Messiah, and that's what they're being baptized. They're identifying. And so Jesus comes, and John sees him, and Jesus says, you know, I need to be baptized. And John says, 
I, I need to baptize, <laughs> you need to baptize me, not me, you. And he said, no, do this to fulfill righteousness because Jesus is identifying with fallen mankind. And so Jesus is baptized. Holy Spirit comes down. The Father says, my beloved Son. So you have the Trinity. And then if you look at chapter 4, this is right after the baptism, chapter 4, then Jesus was led by Satan into the wilderness. Is that what it says? Look at it carefully. What does it say? By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who just came down and stayed on Jesus, so to speak, has led Jesus out into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Now, what we realized at the very beginning, that it's the plan. It's God's plan that Jesus would be tempted by the devil. After the baptism, the baptism. Jesus was led in the wilderness for the temptation. So uh, the idea here is Jesus is going to be tempted. Now you would say to yourself, can Jesus be tempted? Of course he can be tempted. Can he sin? No, he cannot sin. So we're going to see what happens. And so as you look at this carefully, in verse 2 it says, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. You think so? Yeah. If you didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, would you be hungry? Yeah, I'd be starving to death. You know, you'd be saying, man, I've lost a lot of weight. You know, so you, he's, he's out there in the wilderness. And when you think of wilderness, don't think of trees and all that. Just barren. He's out in that area. And uh, so he, he's there. And notice the devil's going to come. And the devil is going to try three different times to tempt Jesus. Three different times. And I want you to think about the whole plan, Satan's plan, to get Jesus to sin by going contrary to the Father's will. So let me just say something. Even if Jesus did something that would be good, if it was contrary to what God the Father had for him to do, that would be what? It would be sin for the, for the fact that he's the Son of God who always does the Father's will. And so Satan is smart enough to say, if I can just get Jesus to go contrary to the will of the Father. So let's look at the first temptation. And look at, and I'm going to put this over a little closer. And so the tempter came to, G, to, to, to Jesus, this is verse 3, and said, here's what he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Well, the first thing I want you to understand is he, he, he says, if, and in the Greek it says, if, and it's true. When he says, if you're the Son of God, he's not saying, well, I don't know. I don't know if you're the Son of God or not. Maybe you're the Son of God, maybe you're not the Son of God. In the original language, he said, if, and it's true. It's called a first-class if in Greek. He's actually recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. So he says, if and it's true, you are the Son of God. Here's what you do. Command. Give a command that these stones become bread. Now, if you're really hungry, a lot of things look good. You know what I mean? I mean, even if you said, here's the stone, I'm going to make it bread. I mean, you say, man, that, that, uh, that, that looks good. Stone become bread. Now, what Satan is saying is this. You have a need. You're out in the wilderness. Your father hasn't met that need. Your needs need to be met. You are God. You can make, instead of going hungry, you can make this stone's bread. The father should have given you food already. Why would he put you out here for 40 days without eating anything if he really was looking out for you? And sometimes in our lives things happen and our mind says, if God really loved me, why, why would this be happening to me? And so he says to Jesus, if, if you're the Son of God, if and it's true, you are, why don't you take these stones and make them bread? 
Satan always wants us to do our will rather than God's will. Sometimes our sometimes doing our will is not sin in the sense that it's like lying or stealing, but it's going contrary to what God has for us to do. And so this is what he says, you need to do this. Well, let's see the response. What did Jesus do? Look at verse 4. But he answered and said, Jesus answers and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, Jesus answered and said, and he said, it is written. Literally, in the Greek, it has been written. That has the idea that it's settled. It's true. This is what's right. He's going back to Deuteronomy, by the way. Every, he's going to tempt Jesus three times, and Jesus is going to go to the Scripture three different times. And where would you go if you were tempted? Would you go to Deuteronomy? We probably wouldn't, but Jesus knows the Bible. In fact, he wrote it. So he's picking out Deuteronomy. You know, we might think, well, why don't you go like to Samuel or Samuel or, you know, somewhere in Genesis. Some we all know, but he goes to Deuteronomy 8. And basically, he quotes, he says, it is written, here this is in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what he's actually saying? It's not food. It's not what I need. The word of God is the key. What did the Father have for me to do? I'm not going contrary to the word of God. And so the bottom line is obey God's word rather than our desires. Every word of God, the, per the Bible is perfect and true. And sometimes we're tempted to go contrary to the Scripture. And our goal is that we have to live by the Word of God. And so Jesus could say this, My Father brought me out here. If He wanted me to eat, He would give me something to eat. I've got to trust Him. And the application is we have to obey the Bible rather than our desires. The lust of the flesh. And, and uh, have you ever, t listen, as a pastor, I talk to people, and you know what some people say sometimes? They may say something like this. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not going to do that. Right? I've had, have you ever had anybody tell you that? I have. I've had people look at me and say, I know what that says, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And so what they're saying is, this is what I want to do, and I know what God says to do, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Satan says, that's wonderful. It's exactly what I try to get Jesus to do. Do what the Father, you know, contrary to the Father. So Jesus says, if I really needed bread, I'd get bread. We have to trust God to provide for our needs in His way. In His way. So that's the first temptation. The first temptation really lust to the flesh. You want something to eat? Man, you haven't eaten in 40 days. It looks so good, doesn't it? You could, you could take that. You could just say, bread, uh, stone be bread. It'd be bread. And it'd be hot bread, probably. It'd be really good. It'd have butter. Probably have butter and bread. It'd be great. Jesus said, nope, nope. So, what happened? What's the next thing? What does he do? Well, verse, the second temptation is Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He takes him to Jerusalem, the holy city. Look what he says next. Then the devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, guess what? What do you think that is, if you are the Son of God? It's first class if. Since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, I'm going to stop for a second and show you something. When you think about the temple, the temple mount was, was this on the top of a big, old, a big old hill. And then there was, a, best we can say, somewhere in here was the temple. And here was a court of the Gentiles and here was the other place. The pinnacle of the temple, like here's a, what they call the eastern gate that you could come down the Mount of Olives and go in through this way. And around this edge right here, it's called the pinnacle of the temple because it goes about 300 feet down. It's a long way down. 
People are all down in here. They come up and then they come into the city or they come into the temple area and then they come over to the temple here. So the pinnacle of the temple is not on top of the temple. It's basically off the, one of the sides of the wall. And so he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he basically says, jump off. It's way up there. I've been to the pinnacle of the temple. You can go and, and you can look down. And it's way down there. In fact, there's a road down there now. You can see cars and everything. So he said, if you're the Son of God, since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Why? Because it is written, he's going, the devil's going to quote the Bible. The devil's going to quote the Bible. And look what he says. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11, and 12. First of all, he, uh, he quotes 91, 11, but he left out part of the verse, and he did it on purpose, I'm sure. And he says, if, and it's true, go ahead and jump. Now think about this. Would you, what would Jesus gain by jumping off a 300-foot place, okay? Well, the devil says, if you jump off, you what? You won't, you won't get hurt because doesn't Psalm 91 say that the angels will guard you, that they will bear you up, you'll not even strike your foot against the stone. He'll command his angels to take care of you. I think there's, there's two big ideas here, and that's at the top of one of the pages, is this. By falling... He will not get hurt. Here's what the devil is saying to him. By falling, you will not get hurt, and they'll see you as the Messiah. So he's saying, if you just jump off, because you want everybody to know you're the Messiah, if you jump off, fall all the way down, and the angels don't even let you get hurt, people will come up and say, you must be the Messiah, because you fell all that way, and you didn't get hurt. But the second thing is, there was a tradition that said, the Messiah will suddenly appear. What better way to suddenly appear than fall off the top of the temple thing and land and go, I'm okay. And that everybody, so he's, Satan is saying, you really want people to know? Then just jump off this thing. And let me tell you, I have to tell you this story, so you got to listen. So I had a, a really good friend. She in, lives in Dallas now, but she was in the church I was in back when I was coaching at Mississippi State. And she taught third grade girls Sunday school on Sunday morning. So one morning she's teaching this lesson. And she gets to the point and she says, and so Satan said to Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And she talked talk about how high it was and everything. And then she said, and what do you think Jesus said? And the little girl raised her hand and she said, what? She said, dares to go first. <laughs> Would Jesus have been seen as the Messiah because he jumped off the temple? I mean, does Satan lie to us? Does Satan say things that almost sound right sometimes? You remember he's a deceiver and a liar, and so he always tricks everything. When he quotes verses, he quotes half the verse. He doesn't give you the whole thing. I mean, remember what he told Adam and Eve? He says, you, God doesn't want you to eat that because the day you eat that, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Does God know good and evil? So would they be like God, knowing good and evil? Yes. Would they be like God is what they really thought. No. So he always lies. He always does that. And so he tricks. And so he's trying to trick Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, if you'll just jump off, God will protect you and everybody will know the Messiah. So what is Jesus' response? Matthew 4, verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, <laughs> let me give you a different verse. Jesus is going to give him scripture. You ever talk to somebody and they'll give you a verse and you say, well, I mean, that's a good, let me, let me show you a verse that... 
is really right. You know, okay, you're right. And so Jesus says, oh, wait a minute, on the other hand, let me give you another verse. It has been written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Guess where he's quoting from? Deuteronomy 6.16, not put the Lord to the test. And here's what he's really saying. It's not God's timing. He will show, God will show Jesus as Messiah at the right time. Jesus doesn't have to jump off a building <clears throat> for people to know that he's the Messiah. And you know what we have to do? We have to trust God because sometimes Satan says, if you really want that, you better do this now. And you have to say, no, wait a minute. No, that's not right. If I really want that, I'm just going to have to trust God that if I'm supposed to have that, if that's supposed to happen, then I'll just have to trust him and wait for the right time. And so Jesus basically says, no, no, the Word of God says don't put the Father to the test. So let's see the third temptation. And that's in Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 8. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, where can you go on a mountain in the world that will show you all the kingdoms of the world? You can't. I mean, this is like he's taking him to some supernatural thing and showing him all of the whole world. Now, you could say, why is he doing that? I mean, Jesus created it all. He knows everything anyway. And look what he says, though. He took him to the very high mountain and he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, we're going to look at that in more detail in just a second. But he says, here's what I want you to do. I'll give you the world if you'll worship me. Now, the question could be, and, and is this, let me go back here. Worship me and I'll give you the world. Let me ask you something. Does Satan have the world? Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. Now, God is in control of everything. He has allowed Satan to be the king of the world. He's called the God of this age. Let me put these verses up. I had them right here a while ago. He's called the God of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. So does Satan control the world system? And, and that's why he says, I'll give all these things to you if you fall down and worship me. He says, this, I, have, I have the right to give this to you if you fall down and worship me. You remember that when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, that Adam, you're really the king. You're the king of the world. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, rule the earth. You're the king. But when Satan came and they sinned, they lost dominion as the king of the earth. And who got it? Satan got it. And one day, Jesus, who is the king of kings and the lord of lords, he's going to come back and he's going to take over and he's going to rule the world as the king of kings and the lord of lords. So the second temptation here, or the third temptation is, you can be the king of everything. You can be the king of everything. And you can take the world. But what does Jesus say to him? Then Jesus said to him, go. Literally in the Greek, get out of here. Get out of here. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's God's plan. That Jesus would die... And then he would reign. Satan's plan, Jesus would reign without dying. Do you think Satan would give up the world in order to stop the salvation of mankind? Yes. Somebody say, yeah. yeah. 
That's exactly what he would do. That's what he's offering right here, isn't he? I'll give you the world if you won't go to the cross. See, in the Bible, it's the cross and then the crown. But Satan said, no, 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 no. You can have, you can have the crown without, without the cross. You don't, we don't have to have a cross. You can, just, you can be a king. You can be the king of the world. I mean, you can see Satan say, I'm the king of the world. I can give you the kingdom. You can be the king of the world. But God's plan is that Jesus has to die. You have to have the cross before the crown. You can't have the crown before the cross. And Satan is so clever. You want to be king? I thought you wanted to be king. I thought you are king of kings and lord of lords. Don't you want to rule? You can rule right now. In fact, if you will worship me. And by the way, I want you to notice this. Notice there's an if there. It says, verse 9, he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's not a first class if. That's a third class if in Greek, which means if maybe you will, maybe you won't. He's not going to. So in, when Satan says, if you're the Son of God, he says, if and it's true, you're the Son of God. When he comes to this part and says, if you fall down and worship me, he's really saying, if, maybe you will, maybe you won't. He doesn't know. He doesn't, he doesn't think so, probably. How does Jesus respond to all of this? By the way, if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, there is no salvation for mankind. Think about that. All the way through. Have, have you thought about how the uh, there's a kind of an old saying that says the angels have been holding their breath for a long time, <laughs> watching the creation and the fall and the coming of the Messiah all the way through and watching all those things and and say, they're saying <coughs> hope something doesn't stop it till he gets here. <coughs> and then Jesus is born and you can almost see him. Uh, an angel comes down to Joseph and says, "Get out of town. They're gonna try to kill the baby." Right? They get out. So, at this time, you can almost see the good angels going, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Because you have to die to save the man, save mankind. Aren't we glad that, that Jesus didn't listen? Aren't we glad that Jesus, now he's perfect, he's the son of God. He's going to do the right thing always. But aren't we glad that he said, get out of here. I'm not worshiping anyone. I'm not taking that kingdom. I'm not jumping off a mountain. I'm not jumping off a hill. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. He quoted the word of God again, Matthew 14. He says, be gone. Get out of here. You'll worship God only. And once again, he quotes Deuteronomy all three times. It's sort of amazing that in the biggest temptation ever, where does he go? He goes to Deuteronomy. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Is it more to show his faithfulness to the Father or more to put him in an even potentially weaker state that he still showed that he was who he was because he was still able to deny all of these things when he's kind of wiped out? The answer is yes. No. <laughs> you said it all exactly. I think it's part of it was that he's, it shows he's going to be obedient to the Father. The Father used the Holy Spirit to take him out there and, not, and not, him not eat anything. And he's yielded to the will of the Father. And at the same time, even in a hungry state, and in a sense that someone could say, why did your Father take you out here? Why is he leaving you out here? Why are you in this mess? 
And Satan comes and says, why are you in this mess? If you want some food, you can get some food. You want to be the king, you can be the king. We can, I, I can take care of all this stuff. If your father's really taking care of you, why are you going through this mess? And it's the same thing for all of us in our trials in life. Sometimes we go through trials in life and people say to, just like they said to Job, Job, obviously you must be doing something wrong or these things wouldn't happen to you. And you could almost say to Jesus, you must have done something wrong for him to put you out here for 40 days with no food. You should be able to eat something. You should be able to rule. You, you shouldn't have to die to be the king of kings and lord of lords because after all, you are already the king of everything. And, and Jesus said, Get out of here. I don't listen to you. Well, Jesus is completely man and God. So it's hard to say his man side did this and his God side did this. He's all one. It, there's an aspect that as a human being, he would understand temptation. He would be hungry. He, he would look and, and, and as a human being, think of being a king. As a human being, that he got tired. As a human, and he, so he, he's a human being, but at the exact same time, he's God. And so he's not, he's, a, he's incapable of sinning. There's an old historical, there were theolo theologians have, for years have said, and this is used in Latin, it was called passe non capare or non casse capare, which literally means... Is he able not to sin or not able to sin? Was Jesus just not able to sin, meaning he could have sinned but he just didn't? Or is he not able to sin? And they've argued for, for centuries. Theologians have argued for centuries. I don't know why they argue. It's obvious that if Jesus is God, he cannot sin. So he's not able to sin. So I've I, I solved that argument for, you know, you took, right? Well, if they had just listened to us, we'd have it solved. But anyway, that, uh, so it's, it's true. I think it all ties together that, that as a, he's, he's the God-man. So he experienced, and that's why the Bible says he was tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. Now, he didn't have a flesh, a natural pull to sin. He didn't have that. But guess what? Neither did Adam. Adam didn't have the flesh until after he fell. So having no flesh, as far as a human being is concerned, doesn't mean you would never sin. Because Adam and Eve sinned without a flesh. Now we have the flesh, which means it's a natural thing for us to sin. Jesus didn't have the flesh. So he's not going to be pulled by the flesh. But he's the God-man, so he can't sin. Okay, what else? Anything else? Because he's born, born of a virgin. And the, the nature, the sin nature, through one man sin in the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men because all sin because it comes through the, the man. And so being born of a virgin, that's why he has to be born of a virgin so that he doesn't have a, the, what we'd say is the flesh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So the truths concerning temptation. I want you to think about this. That in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, here's what he says. And you just can write this in. I'm going to see where you are. We're at the top, top of that page. The next page. And here's what it says. There are three areas that we're tempted. In 1 John, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now think about that. We're tempted by the lust of the flesh. And that's the idea of, of I want something to fulfill me, whether it's food or, or, or maybe it's sex. Whatever's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes is I see something that I want. I see something. And no, tell him what it could be. It could be anything. And then the pride of life. 
And that's how, in 1 John, when he writes, he says, this is how we're tempted. Those three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Do you agree with me? Is it, is it sometimes you want to fulfill the flesh, whether it's food or sex or something? Do you want to fulfill the lust of the eyes? You want to look at something? You want to see something that you know is right or wrong, especially wrong? Do you want, do you want to? And, and pride makes you lie. Pride makes you do anything. Well, you realize that this temptation was exactly the same for Jesus. Jesus was tempted in these areas. He said, how about some food? That's the lust of the flesh. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Why don't you get something to eat? And then, how about the lust of the eyes? Here's what's going to happen. When you fall off and everybody will look at you and you will be able to go, yes, I'm, I'm God. I'm the king. And then the pride of life, which means you rule all the nations of the world. So in the same way that Jesus was... The, and let's, let's put it this way. If you go back to the garden, they, they were tempted the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. He said, this is good for food. She, that was flesh. She saw that it looked good. That's eyes. And she knew that it would make her wise. That's make her like God. That's the pride. So the original temptation has those three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The temptation of Jesus has those three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The temptation that you're going to experience every day it's going to be those three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we've got to be ready. That's why, that's why we have Adam and Eve's story. That's why we have Jesus' story. And so you think about it. Remember, Adam, Adam, and Eve, Adam is the first Adam, and Jesus is the last Adam. So the first Adam failed in those three areas. The last Adam, Jesus, did not fail in those three areas. And so that's who we are. That's what it is. With that in mind, the time we have left, I want us to see, the, well, we got, we got one other thing and then one other thing. It's a conflict of the world, and I'll go really fast through this. We've seen that he was conflict with Satan, but there was conflict in the world from the time he came, from the time of his birth and after the temptation, and then there's always the religious leaders. I want you to see this, John 1, 10 and 11. He, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world what? Didn't even know him. He created the world, and the world didn't even know him. He came into his own. Who is his own? His Jews. He came to the Jews, and those were his own, did not even what? They didn't receive him. So there was conflict with the world. I want to give you some verses. The world didn't know him. His own nation rejected him. Even the people, when they liked him, said, let's make him king so we can do what? Defeat the Romans. You remember there was a time that may surprise you, that right after he fed the 5,000, he went up on the side of the hill, and he sent his guys in a boat to go across. And he went up and got away because it says he perceived the crowd was going to make him king by force. You could say, well, isn't that what he wanted? No. They were wanting to make him king so they can defeat the Romans. Not as the Messiah and the Savior. Let me give you some conflicts. And you don't have to write all this down. But in John, Matthew 15, this is where they come and they get on to him because his, his guys aren't following all the little rules. And he says, you made up commandments of men. And you've disobeyed the commandments of God. In chapter 15, verse 12, the Pharisees are offended at him. In Luke chapter 11, he gives the woes, and he says seven woes, and it is not pleasant. Woe unto you serpents and snakes. You lead people astray, and you're going to hell, and you're taking them with you. That's what he said, by the way. Maybe not in those exact words, but that's what he said. 
Okay, and then in Luke chapter eleven fifty three, they were hostile to him. And Luke twenty verse nineteen, the scribes, the priests, and the Sadducees were against him. And to sum it sort of up, in John eleven fifty three, they planned to kill him. Let me ask you a question: Why did the religious leaders want to kill Jesus? Huh? They it actually says, and you're right. That they met together and they said this. If Jesus keeps calling on all these problems and all these people keep following him, the Romans are going to come and take our positions away. You remember we said that the Romans were in charge, but the Romans allowed the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he allowed them to rule. And they basically let them rule themselves unless they got out of hand. And since Jesus is causing such issues, these religious leaders are so afraid they're going to lose their authority and power that they'll kill Jesus. And that's why even Pilate says, uh, Caiaphas says, it, it's, um, it's expedient that one man would die for the nations. It would be better that he would die than our whole nation collapse. They planned to kill him. Now, we've seen this conflict at, at, with Satan and the conflict with the religious leaders. And so, he, he, you know, they wanted to stop Jesus. Now, they can't stop him. So let's look at this second part. The second part is one of my favorite things. And then next week, it'll be really one of my favorite things because we're going to see some details. But this last part is the cross. So I want you to think about the cross. And uh, you, you, let, let's talk about the last night. Let's talk about the order. So here's the men. You remember that? And I'll go real fast on this. So just listen. You don't have to write down everything. But the guys came to Jesus and they said it was Passover time. They knew that was the time they would look back and how the lamb was slain. And they came out of Egypt and they uh, defeated, you know, came out of Egypt. And they were not into bondage anymore. And so, the, so the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, where do you want us to eat the Passover meal? And he said, you'll go follow this guy. He's got a pitcher of water. Follow him. You'll go to a place, upper room. Talk to the man, tell him where's the room, he'll have it fixed and we'll meet. And so they got there. And when they got there, they got ready to do Passover. And if you remember, and at the beginning, Jesus, they all kind of gave in. And if you remember this, that here's how they, there was a little table. Some, some people say it was a square table like that. Some people say it was a different type of table. But here's like Jesus. And, and he's, the table is about this high. And then they would lay out like this with their arm out and they would reach up and eat and talk to each other. And so they laid around the table. And so here's somebody here and here's somebody here and here's somebody here and here. And they laid all the way around the table like that. It wasn't that they were sitting at a table like that painting. Okay? And if you remember, Peter is over here and this, this is John and this is Judas. Because Judas is right beside Jesus and John is on the other side. In fact, Jesus is laying like this, and John is laying like this. So John would be like this. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter looks over at John and says, ask him who it is. So it says, John leaned back on Jesus like this and said, who is it? So here they are. They're having this meal, and they're taking the, the cup, and Jesus makes the change. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. This do remember to me. And he does. And then they get through the end, and they sing a song. And then when they get through with the song, they head out. And in John chapter, the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, is the upper room discourse in which he takes us through that. But at about chapter 15, they leave the room, and they go by a vineyard. And that's when Jesus stops and teaches about, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That kind of, and then they get to the garden, 
and it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the, it's on the hill. If this is Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill called Zion. Then there's a valley called the Kidron Valley. And then there's another hill called the Mount of Olives. And on the side of the Mount of Olives is this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the Garden of the Olive Press. And Jesus, would, they went this way a lot. In fact, people would come down, go up, go up into the city. And so they leave, they go by the vineyard somewhere, and they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they're there, Jesus prays. He says, I'm going to pray by myself. Look, Peter, James, and John, come over here with me. Y'all pray. Don't fall asleep. They fall asleep three times. He comes back. Here comes the arrest. My favorite part of the arrest is when Jesus steps out. They come with torches and everything. He looks at them, and he says, who are you asking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, what? I am. That's all he says. And it says they go backwards and put their faces to the ground. I've said many times, if I was there, I think I'd leave. I'd say, I, I'm not arresting that guy. But anyway, so they try, you know, they get him and they arrest him and he's tried. And if you remember, as we, as we talked about it, that um, he was tried three times by the Jews. They were all at night. They were all illegal trials because under the Sanhedrin's rules, you could not... You could not try someone at night. All three trials were Jesus at night. All three were illegal, and all three found guilty. And he was then tried by the Romans three different times. It was during the day. Jesus had no standing before the Romans. He was not a Roman citizen. He had no rights before the Romans. He was tried three times. He was found not guilty all three times. But the religious leaders incited the crowd, and you can hear Pilate say, What, what has he done? And he said, listen, I have a rule. Every year at Passover, I release a notorious prisoner. Who would you like me to release? Jesus or Barabbas? Do you know what? Jesus is called the son of what? The son of the father, isn't he? You know what Barabbas means? Barabbas means son of the father. That's what his name means. So you got two sons of the father. And he's offering them to the people. Which one do you want? Barabbas, who was a, mar a, a murderer? Or Jesus, the Son of God. And of course, the people were led by the religious leaders and they incited the crowd to crucify him. And that's the plan. And you think, oh, poor Jesus, they just got him. No, no. Jesus will lay down his life. He says, no one has taken it from me. I will lay it down on my own. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. Listen, Jesus was not helpless. If Jesus, if they came to arrest Jesus, he could have called how many angels? The song, I could have called 10,000 angels, right? He could, have done, he could have called one angel and wiped out everybody there because one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So he didn't, he didn't need any help. And when Peter pulls out the sword and cuts the guy's ear off, and he goes, Peter, put it back in there, and he has to fix the guy's ear. I mean, so, so Jesus is planning to die for us. And so he says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. So now, let's talk about the crucifixion. And we're going pretty fast. I just want you to see some of these things. And you can write them down, and we can write them fast if you want to. Here's the crucifixion. Here, And you can write it. The first of all, it began with a scourging. They would take a person that was going to be crucified. And crucifixion was the most, really the most horrible way to die. I mean, if they cut your head off, how long do you suffer? It's nothing. It's over, you know. But crucifixion, you could suffer for days and days and days. So what they did is they first, they beat a person. They scourged them. They had a whip and they whipped them. And sometimes people died during that. They never even made it to be crucified because the beatings were so bad. And they beat Jesus. If you remember, they beat him. And then they had to carry the cross. And there were usually four soldiers with each one of the condemned people. So Jesus is carrying the cross. If you remember, he was so worn out, hadn't had any sleep at all, had stayed up all night with three trials. 
was been beaten, uh, crown of thorns put on his head, all that, making fun of him. And he gets, as he carries the cross, he can't carry it. And a guy by the name of who? Anybody know? Huh? Who carries the cross? And Simon comes, and he's, he's, he's the father of a guy named Rufus. And so they, he carries the cross for Jesus. And then they, they actually get him ready, and they usually give, they used to give uh, a drink, a vinegar drink, which would dull the pain. It had some stuff in it that dulled the pain. And you remember they gave it to Jesus, and he tasted it, and then he wouldn't drink it. Because he didn't want to be in any kind of stupor. He wanted, he, he, you know, he wanted to know exactly what he's doing. Then they nail him to the beam to the cross. Most of the time people say the hand, but most likely it was right there and right there. And then they put the feet together and nail one nail to the feet. They, they uh, had a little platform that they put your feet where you were like this. And then as you begin to sink down, you can't breathe anymore, so you're able to pull yourself up. And what usually killed you in a crucifixion was not the nails. You suffocated. You got to the point where you could not hold yourself up any longer and you slumped all the way down and it cut off your windpipe and you, you basically suffocated. Sometimes it took days for people to die. So they nailed Jesus to the cross and he's left to die. The soldiers, there are four of them, they, they get his possession. Somebody gets his sandals, somebody gets his shoes, somebody gets something else, somebody, uh, you know, his, his outer coat. And they found this one piece that is amazing. And they said, well, we all want it, but we don't want to tear it into pieces. So they cast lots to get it. And, and then... When it was time for people to die and they wanted to get it over with faster, they could break, they could come and break people's legs so that they couldn't push up anymore and they died quicker. But Jesus died before they, it was, it was, uh, uh, they knew the next day was going to be a Sabbath day, not Saturday, but the day after the Passover, Passover's on the 14th day of the first month, 15th day of the first month is a Sabbath day, a rest day. So they wanted to get Jesus off the cross before the Sabbath day. And so they said, Let, let's just tell them to break the legs then. Well, they go up and Jesus is already dead. And so when you think about what happened with Jesus, they, you know, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea comes and he comes to Jesus, uh, comes to the pilot and says, um, can I have the body? And he, he says, he dead? And he calls a soldier and the soldier said, yeah, he's dead. He said, yeah, you can have the body. And Joseph of Arimathea and another guy by the name of Nicodemus is the one that buried Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to see. Two things quickly. Uh, the sayings on the cross and the prophecies. And there are a lot of prophecies. I just want to give you three. So let me give you the sayings on the cross. And uh, first of all, and if that's the top of the next page, and I'm just going to, you just, you just write them down. You know them already. The first one is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're putting him on the cross. And Jesus looks out at the soldiers and the people, and he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Did you know there were people there that if you said, do you realize you're killing the Son of God? They'd say, we don't know what you're talking about. And you remember the day of Pentecost? Y'all remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? You don't have to write them all down at one time. We'll go through them. Listen to this. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up with this crowd of Jewish people and he said, you crucified the Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. And it said they were cut to the heart. Because there were a lot of them. They didn't grasp what they were doing. The second thing is, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He told the thief beside him who said, who believed in him and said, when you come in your kingdom, don't forget me. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the heart of the earth. And then he said, woman, behold your son. He looked down there and there was his mother. Can you imagine Mary seeing all this? And he saw John, who was the youngest of the disciples. And he said, Mary, that's your son. 
John, that's your mother. Okay? And then he said, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's doing? And we're going to see this in the next two lessons. In fact, the next lesson, next week, do not miss next week. We're going to see, how could he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he doing? How was he forsaken? Was he paying for sin? Was it a spiritual payment? How did it work? And then he said, I thirst. Why did he say, I thirst? You know why? He was thirsty. (laughs) And... He's got something he's got to say. And you know what he says? It is finished. The payment for sin is made. Now I want to raise a question for you. The payment for sin was made was before Jesus died physically. Just understand that. We'll talk about it next week. And then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies and goes to the Father. Incredible truth. We've done studies. I think I did a study when we went through the Gospel of Matthew just recently. We stopped and we looked at every one of the seven uh, of his sayings of Christ on the cross. And we saw how they fit together. It's pretty impressive. Now, I want you to think about the prophecies. And I only listed three. And these deal with him on the cross. And there are three things. First of all, in Psalm 22:18, it said they would cast lots for his clothes. Did they cast lots for his clothes? They sure did. Could he, could he make them do that? <laughs> Have you ever thought about somebody say, oh, well, he, he knew what the prophecies were, so he made it happen. Oh, oh, he made them cast lots for his clothes? How about the second one? No bones of his would be broken. Could you see him coming to break his bones? And he said, no, no, don't break my bones because i got to keep the prophecies intact. No. Okay. What about they will look on him whom they have pierced? Psalm 22. Let me tell you what happened one time. You're not going to believe this. I was in my grow group, and I opened up the Bible. I said, listen to this. I'm going to read something to you, and you tell me who's saying this. And I read something, and they all said, that's Jesus on the cross. I said, it is, but I'm reading from Psalm 22. A thousand years before Jesus was ever born. He said, they have pierced my hands and feet. Do you know that when, Jesus, when, Je- when uh, David wrote that, which is talking about Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus was born, nobody ever heard a crucifixion and piercing hands and feet. So those prophecies are amazing. And I love this right here. It is what? It's finished. That's victory in the cross. And we're going to see a lot more of that next week when we go through this. So there's some really incredible things. So let me give you some key areas. And once again, write them down as you go if you want to. The first one is this. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. That's not something necessarily you got to write all these down. You already know most of it. But think about it. That's our symbol. That's our symbol. How many of you have a cross that you wear? Anybody wear a cross? I got one right here. I love it. Okay? But it's a piece of jewelry for me, but it wasn't for Jesus. Let me tell you. Okay? The devil's goal in the temptation was for Jesus to go contrary from the Father's will. That's what he wanted. You know what his goal for you is? Go contrary to the will of God. Just disobey the Scripture. Just disobey the Scripture. Third one. Jesus stood strong on what? On the Word of God. Isn't that something? we got to go back to the Bible. And if when the temptations come, if we would just go to the Bible, we'd be okay. Fourth one. 
the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus and wanted to kill him. Why? Because he's going to take their places. They're going to lose their places. They don't want him to be the king. They don't want him to be the Messiah. Jesus was arrested, arrested and crucified, which fulfilled Scripture and God's plan. See, he has to go to the cross, and then what? Then the crown. Okay, so he had to, he had to do it. Had to do it. And look at this. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross showed his forgiveness and his finished work. So incredible. So incredible. One more thing, and that's the applications. When I look at this and I think about the conflict with Satan and the world and then going to the cross and the crucifixion and all the things they did to him and all what happened on the cross and what he said on the cross. And so when we, when we stop tonight, he's, he's on the cross and basically we've got him where he, it's finished. Next week, we're going to go and look what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Because it's, there are some things there that most people have never even thought about. And we'll see how it fits together. Let me give you some applications. Let's realize that we are tempted in the same way as Jesus. What's those three ways? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Just expect it. Expect it before you get home. Something's going to touch you in one of those three areas. And just affect it tomorrow. That as you're walking around, there's going to be lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. It's going to be there. It's going to pull on you because you have a flesh and you're in a fallen world and Satan is the God of this age. And just expect it. Let's realize that we must live by the word of God in order to have victory in the Christian life. It's the only way it's going to happen. How did Jesus have victory? I mean, we know that he's God and he's not going to sin. But what did he use? What did he use? He used the word of God. That's what we have to do. The word of God. This next one is really amazing. Look at this. Let's realize that religion will always be in opposition to true Christianity. It's always that way. Always that way. Were the Pharisees and the Sadducees in opposition to Jesus, were they the religious leaders of the day? I mean, it's religion is man doing something to please God, to try to get to God. And it's always in opposition to true Christianity because true Christianity is all by grace through faith. We don't do anything to please God. We don't. He's done it all. So religion is in contrast. And then let's praise God. That Jesus, uh, that I, I see there's a type right here. It says, let's praise God that Jesus finished his work on the cross, providing the way for salvation for mankind. I'm sorry, I, we didn't see that when we typed it. It's fin Jesus finished his work on the cross, providing the way of salvation for mankind. So when we think of the cross... We think of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think of the way that God has opened the door, has made it possible that anyone who believes will never perish but have everlasting life because he's done it all.